this morning to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, that famous Christmas passage where Jesus applies the relationship with God to which he's calling Israel. He applies it in terms of wealth, reward, and eternal value. Get my presentation going here. This portion of Scripture is uh, so very helpful, really, to me every day. Almost every day I have to think about what Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 6. It is difficult. There's a little bit of a riddle to it. And so I've passed it on to some people who will say, I really don't understand what he's saying there, that image that he uses about light in your eye. I don't get it. And um, once we jump over that hurdle and understand exactly what he's saying, it really will become um, a powerful inducement to our faith because, uh, and really to our service because God is taking the responsibility for our material needs. And the sooner we recognize that, I didn't say the material needs of the poor. I didn't say the material needs of those who can't provide for themselves. I said all of our material needs. God takes the responsibility for those things. And he gives us a set set of priorities, a sense of responsibility to be about his work because he's the one cutting the checks. And when we make that adjustment as believers, when we make that adjustment, everything changes. I said as believers, disciples of Jesus, being taught by Jesus here to be disciples and disciple makers, um, the Lord is offering the ultimate gift to all human beings through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that God chose the Roman method of execution, crucifixion, and he arranged history such that the act which would save us from our sins, all humans, where he paid for all the sins of the world, would be something we could imagine as suspended between heaven and earth. The very act of crucifixion is to turn a human being into a billboard. And what that means, what the meaning is to us, is very different from what the Romans meant by it. When the Romans hung a man on a cross, they said, don't mess with Rome. When God provided from eternity past that his son would be lifted up and hang on that Roman cross, he was saying, I love you. To the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This placarding, Paul calls it, this portraying Christ as crucified for you. This is something that we can all understand, that he had to be lifted up. And that we, like Israelite, the Israelites in the, in the book of Numbers, in that story of the, the, of the, of the, the poisonous snakes, we can look unto him who has been crushed for us and receive healing. When I say healing, I don't mean that your, your back pain or your cancer or whatever other ailment is necessarily going to be taken. I mean something far more important. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, and he raises us from the dead in the sense that he gives us his life when we first trust in Jesus as our Savior. And we want to make very clear that the calls to discipleship mean nothing to those who don't have the life. 
Discipleship is the Christian life. It is to live it. But if you don't have the Christian life, there's no expectation that you would live it. And that's a very interesting place. A lot of people have gotten tripped up. A lot of people think that they are doing the high calls that God gives us to discipleship and service in order to receive the life that God eventually give them on their merit. And that's not the gospel. That's, those are the people that said, we served you. And then the Lord said, I never knew you. You can't live the life unless you are born again to the life. And the new life comes by simple childlike faith. As Jesus said, suffer the little ones to come unto me. For of such is the kingdom. The way you get the life is you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior from your sins. That he died to pay for your sins on the cross and he rose from the dead demonstrating God's satisfaction and offering you and me his eternal life. And when you first trust in Jesus as your Savior is the moment of the new birth. And the new birth is just so portrayed that it is not a lifelong process of eventually coming to enough steps where you finally really get there. That's the Christian sanctification. The biblical portrayal is birth. It may take 18 hours. It may take 36 hours of some crazy laborious process. But the beginning of your earthly life separated from your mother is a discrete event, a birth. And the only way to have the new birth, the new life, the birth from above, is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so we want to be very clear when we talk about the Christian life. We are talking to Christians. We're talking to people with the life and now with the Holy Spirit so that we can, in the power of the Holy Spirit, live the life. And if you don't have Jesus as your Savior, these words of God providing your logistical needs are irrelevant. The question of your father who's seeing what is done in secret will reward you. That's not for you because he's talking to people for whom God is their heavenly father. And the way you get God as your heavenly father is through the new birth. And it's popular to talk about all people are God's children. Well, in a sense, we all get our origin from God as our creator. But God as our heavenly father is a reference to those who with Christ have him as their father through the new birth. And you only get it through Jesus. I want to make that very clear. I want to make that issue very uh, focal as we start this morning because uh, we're called to a wonderful ministry in uh, Matthew chapter 6. In uh, one of the favorite Christmas movies ever made with um, uh, Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye and Rosemary Clooney and that other girl, you have... Uh, Irving Berlin's parade of some of his best songs, and of course the movie's called White Christmas. I love that movie as a movie person because um, it's, it's a culture that no longer exists, and I love that culture compared to other options. I love that movie also because it starts with World War II. I have a soft spot. My grandpa was a World War II veteran. He was a tanker um, in the Battle of the Bulge, of all things. And, um, and he suffered through uh, not a, whole, a long time in theater in World War II, but he did win the Bronze Star for, for his gallantry. Um, not like today where they just hand him out for, for officers that, that survive, but he really won. He earned the Bronze Star through various uh, battles, various uh, skirmishes and engagements. Um, 
And, um, and I just, I, my, my, my dad's dad was also um, on a B-17 um, in the, the 12 o'clock high boys. Uh, he was on that, the double, the, double num- the number of missions they were supposed to do. And, and they went crazy at one point from, from, from trauma and stress um, in those flying fortresses. And, and, um, and neither of them told a lot of their stories. But I loved World War II. I loved that generation. And, um, and I'm just mystified. I'm captivated by um, what happened in that. And, and we're living in the freedom and the security that they won. Um, in World War II, and I, I just, um, so I love White Christmas, but there's this song in there that might escape your notice, it's when they're up looking for buttermilk, and uh, the first time I heard this song was, um, was actually uh, uh, the Raycon of Singers, I, I bought a CD, I was a, in college, and I, I love those old choral male and female combined voice choir, this sounds so good, if you hadn't heard that, it's on the old, the old Christmas radio. But this, there's this song that they, they meld into called uh, We'll Fall Asleep Counting Our Blessings. Do you know that song? It's, it's a real great song. And I don't know anything about Irving Berlin. I, I, I have my suspicions about whether he knew God or not. But the idea, when we're worried and we can't sleep, we'll count our blessings instead of sheep and fall asleep counting our blessings. It's a great thought. Because, because people do worry. It's the end of the year. Taxes are due pretty soon. You've got to figure that out. You've got all kinds of things weighing on you. You've got to figure out how to pay for the credit card bill you just racked up for Christmas. And all, or no, but not, well, nobody here did that. But I mean, all the other people have to worry about that. And, and, uh, and you have all kinds of things that you're concerned about. And you're missing loved ones that have died. And Christmas was different when they were around, and, it's, and now it's hard. And, um, and in some cases, that is the focal thing about this time, is that that person's not here, and that's all. And they're just, they're, to them, the world is a graveyard. And that's where they are. That's, where, that's their life. That's not life, but that's how they feel. And so the idea of anxiety at this time of year is really, um, there are a lot of things that kind of come into focus right about now for our culture, and anxiety is one of them. And I love that song, We'll Fall Asleep Counting Our Blessings. Um, so if you haven't seen White Christmas in a while, maybe. I mean, you won't see one tomorrow, apparently. I think it's going to be a Texas Christmas. It's going to rain? Rain in 40? No? Okay. Okay. Cloudy. All right. The cure for anxiety, as Jesus is going to teach is really not looking at your troubles at all, but it's looking at what God has for you. It's the embrace of your duty. The cure for anxiety in Matthew 6 is the embrace of your duty and God's claim on your life. We had in Matthew 6 already the principle that you want to practice your righteousness before men, but not to be seen by them. Do you remember that? Because you want God to reward you. God who sees in secret will reward you in secret. That's that marvelous principle that it isn't what you're doing so much as why. I've heard people misunderstand this and say, see, you shouldn't be out doing those things for the Lord. Wait a second. You mean the widows and orphans? Yeah, yeah. You're just doing that to be seen by men. No, we're doing that so that people will see those righteous deeds and honor our Father in heaven. We're not doing it for fame or for glory or for accolades. 
But so that's the principle, practicing your righteousness before men. And the sub-principle under this, that's all, and all through this, is your father will reward you. Your father will reward you. Your father, if you're his kid, he'll reward you. And so we're talking about divine rewards, eternal rewards. And we said there are three actions, three, three things people do that are righteous acts, but you need to do them for the right reason and not so that people will give you credit. You'll get a reward from people's concern or regard for you. Oh, that person's holy. Okay, your reward is full. You've gotten your reward because you got what you're after. People looking at you. What Jesus is doing is tearing down the facade of righteousness among self-righteous people. He's attacking Phariseeism, past, present, and future. He's attacking the Phariseeism of his day that said we're holy because it's us. And we're righteous because we keep the law as we understand it, which we've decided is how to keep it. And we do more than the law requires, but we don't, Jesus says, actually do what the law requires. And he attacks that sense of arrogance, that self-satisfaction, that I'm good enough. That is the product of our sinful hearts. And so the self-righteous legalist is under uh, scrutiny here. And, and one of those things that you're looking for, if you want to evaluate yourself and say, do I have this? is am I doing what I'm doing so that men will think highly of me? Now, it isn't wrong to give, to pray, or to fast. It isn't wrong. These are ministries which, used properly, bring honor and glory to God. But the problem is when you're taking the thing that's to worship God with and you're using it to gain glory for yourself. And those, so the self-righteous thing goes hand-in-hand with the self-glory thing. And sometimes... We don't even notice we're doing it. If this is your tendency, you don't think it's you. That's one thing for sure. If you tend to be like this, you don't think this is talking about you. It can't be because you're not like that, except that you are. See what I mean? It's, so self-evaluation is very valuable uh, under the scrutiny of a passage like this. But, um, but the, the point is not that you don't do these things, it's that you don't do them so that people will... Uh, notice you for your glory. It's for God's glory. We said there's no contradiction with Matthew 5. Okay. With that subtext of God rewarding you comes the next thrust of Jesus' message, beginning in verse 19, with the storing up of treasure. The treasure he's talking about is something that God gives, that God secures, that God has as spiritual treasure in heaven in the eternal bank account, the eternal safe deposit box. And the point he makes in this passage is that you need to be thinking about which treasure you're going for. What's the kind of treasure you're after in verses 19 through 21. In verse 22 through 23, he takes the idea of having treasure that is of eternal value to thinking about how that affects your life day, day by day. If you have something of infinite value or something that is your highest treasure, you tend to think about it. You tend to think your mind goes back to it and your eyes, therefore, look at that. And what are you looking at is the question. Because if your treasures are here on earth, then you're looking at the wrong thing and that becomes a problem. In verse 24, you cannot serve God and wealth. And that is a shocking statement for some people. When you realize what he's actually talking about, you cannot serve God and wealth. See, the self-righteous person then says, yeah, those rich people, those rich people that want another house or an extra, you know, a sailboat in addition to their jet ski, and, and they want to have the things, and they're, they're just after material wealth. 
Jesus is not talking about that when he goes forward about serving wealth. In verses 25 through 34, he goes to subsistence. He goes to the basic needs of everyday life that we work and slave away for to feed our families. And he says, that is not what you're serving. You're not serving your basic subsistence. God is providing that. He'll serve that to you. You serve him. So it's a very interesting twist that he takes where people want to go to Matthew 6 and, and rail on wealth. But Jesus is talking to day laborers by the, by the end of it. God provides your needs. You rely on him. He's your, your trust. And so it goes from the idea of practicing your righteousness self-righteously to God providing reward eternally to that reward motivating your day by day to uh, how you trust in God and serve him so that the, the secret to not being worried about life is being on mission. The secret is seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And so it's, it's, it's just he's, he's strutting through this passage totally ripping every misunderstanding down and saying, you really need to follow me because if you miss a step, if you miss one of my messages in this, you're not going to have any clue what we're talking about. And, but if you follow him through, you will have his perspective about your life and what you're for. And you started with your problem and I don't have enough, you know, I'm worried about where I'm going to eat. And you end up with, I'm on mission. I know what I'm here for. And it's very uh, interesting how he makes that switch. In verse 19, he commands, Do not stir up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That little word in verse 21, 4, is a really important word because it gives you the explanation, the principled explanation for why you're worried about verses 19 and 20. Oh, I don't care about material things. Yeah, not caring about material wealth is not quite the same as storing up treasures in heaven. We're not talking about a neutral space where I'm just not materialistic. Well, what are you? Are you spiritual? Are you concerned about the things of God? Are you motivated by service to him and what he's promised to deal with you on that basis? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he talks about the effect of having treasure in heaven and your heart's attention. For the eye, is, the eye is the lamp of the body, so that if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is, is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is that verse that's hard for people. What's he, what's he talking about? If you take the light as a window... Right? I've learned you talking to you building guys that you put, you put lights and windows and doors, the window inside a door or windows in a wall. Building people call those lights. I never heard that before in my life, but I haven't been around building people. They're lights because when the sun's out, it puts light in the room. So they call it a light in the door. Is that a three light door or a six light door? What are you talking about? That door has windows. Well, it's lights. If you take, as they say, the eye as the window of the soul, and you understand window being light, then you have an image, an understanding of what he's saying. When the eye or the window is facing something that is light, there's illumination inside. When you're looking at something that's dark, then the light that's in you that's supposed to cause light is dark. How great is the darkness? That's what he's saying. It's what are you looking at? That's verse 23. 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot love God, serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried. Merimnao, to be worried. Did you know that the Bible prohibits worry for God's people? It doesn't say, there, there, let me pat my hand, there, there, you don't have to worry. Please don't worry. It doesn't do that. It says, stop it. It says, don't worry. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is the same. Don't worry about anything. It's prohibitive. But I'm worried. I know. And it says, don't do that. But I, but I do that. Stop. It's a, it's a no-no. We don't go there. Oh, by the way, I'm also afraid of stuff. Right. And you need to fear the Lord instead of man. Pick one. Fear the Lord, not man. You can't do both. For this reason, I say, do you not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. See how he switches to subsistence? He switches to basic necessities. We just were able, by God's grace, and we want you to understand how this works. We, as a church family, unified and gave to help people in need as we're supposed to, trying to go take care of widows and orphans, and especially tell them the gospel. So Christmas affords us that opportunity. We just did this, and we gave some basic needs. There were families that were asking for linens for their kids. They didn't have a comforter for their kid's bed or something like that. People basically in that condition of some sort of widowhood, an incapable or, or, or a woman that can't provide, and then children with no, no material support. It's like widows and orphans kind of thing. And we just went and, uh, and together as a church family, for God's sake, trusting in Him, were able to share with Him. We weren't just giving the basic necessities, though. We were giving Christmas presents that the kids would want. Things for a little girl or a little boy so that they could have a fun morning at Christmas morning. And it's all part of the same message. But I want you to notice, Jesus isn't talking about the Red Ryder BB gun okay, at Christmas morning. He's talking about socks. He's talking about the next meal. He's talking about food and clothing and shelter, the basic necessities. He isn't saying don't serve your extra. He's saying you can't serve your subsistence. You can't live your life just to take care of the basics. And then he challenges us with the animals. The birds of the air, they don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? That is just really offensive to the animal people. The PETA folks that think animals and humans are the same morally, Jesus has a word for them. It's obvious. It's a rhetorical question that is obvious. Of course, we're much more valuable as human beings than the animals. Jesus doesn't really pull any punches ever, does he? Are you not much worth much more than the animals? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? No, you can't. No one can. But if I worry, then nothing. You don't get anything done with worry. But worry helps me stay focused. Well, you need to learn to focus on the Lord and let him help you develop better patterns. Who can add, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? This is called wisdom, where he tells you why. Not only does he tell you not to worry, he tells you that it's useless. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field, how they grow, and they do not toil or spin. Yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like lilies. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Oh, I'm of little faith if I'm worried about clothing and shelter. 
Thanks, Jesus. I, I must be of little faith then since I'm worried about those things. Yes. If the shoe fits, even if you can't afford them, wear it. If you, if you can't get with the Lord on this and say, I'm not supposed to be worried about these things, yeah, there's a problem. But wait a minute, there's poor people out there. There are. God has a word of stewardship for every human being here. Get with him. Be about his work. He's going to take the responsibility for the sustenance. That's the idea. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But let's all say it together. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The cure for anxiety is being on mission. The obligation God has placed on us. This is the light burden and it's the easy yoke. This is the mission that God gave, God the Father gave the Son to reveal Him. And the Son, by the Father's plan, parlayed to us, His disciples. We're revealing the Father through the Son. No one comes to the Father, Jesus said, except through me. That's what we're doing. And I don't, listen, he's not talking about preachers. Well, okay, what he's talking about includes preachers, but only as a small, very small subset of what he's talking about. He's talking about disciples. And so you, you have to read this in its context. The context of Matthew is within the entire New Testament. The Apostle Paul says, if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. He says, if you won't work, then you won't eat. In 2 Thessalonians, he has some lazy people that won't work anymore. They're out, in, they're out wearing their bed sheets up on a mountaintop waiting for Jesus to come back. And that's not the mission. That's not, that's not what we're called to do. He doesn't say, do nothing and then wait on everyone else to provide for you. He's saying, in your labor, you're not serving wealth. You're not serving the bread that you're going to buy tonight. You're serving God. And that's the attitude. It's no different from the first part where he talks about uh, giving to the poor and praying and fasting. These are righteous acts. So is going to work. But why? For what purpose? To be glorified by men or to bring glory to God? To feed my family or to serve God, fully trusting Him that He is going to feed my family very often through the work He lets me do. It's why you do it. It's the mental attitude. And this is exactly what we should expect from Matthew 6. Because in Matthew 5, it's not, the, it's not the hands, it's not the eye, it's the heart. He's after the inner person. It's not your actions that we're talking about so much as why you do them. In chapter 5, with the law, and God commands the heart. He says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just the outward performance. So we have in Matthew 5 and 6 a very tight message running through it. It's the, it's the core. And it's the inner person serving God with the outer acts as a consequence of that inner relationship, that inner life. And so what's the difference between the hardworking Christian that gets this at work, at your job? You've got a hardworking Christian over in the cubicle next to you or whatever, in the field next to you. Hardworking believer, what's the difference between him and the unbeliever that's a hardworking unbeliever just trying to provide for his family? What's the difference? Outwardly, in the actions they're taking in their job, there shouldn't be much of a difference, except perhaps the Christian motivated by God, empowered by the Spirit. He may have an edge in competence at times. I don't know. But they ought to look the same externally. The question is, why are they doing what they do? The unbeliever's trying to feed his family. The believer's serving God and trusting God to feed his family. 
And they're both doing the same actions. You see what we're saying? We're not telling you not to work. We're not telling you that, that uh, God doesn't require work of us. We're saying that the work is for him. He's our boss. Let me prove it to you. In verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. This is fun, you English uh, speakers. You all have thesauruses. Thesaurizo. That's the word for a treasury. It's a treasury of words in your English Bible. Thesaurizo means to store up or to treasure up. And then you have thesauros, the word thesaurus. But it means treasure. And so don't treasure up treasure is the literal in English when you bring it out of the Greek. Do not store up for yourselves treasures upon the earth. Why not? Who knows why? Why don't we store up treasures for ourselves on earth in context? What's that? Yeah, because it's temporary, because it's going away. That's right. Because the moth can break it, can, can chew it up, and the rust can destroy it. What do moths destroy? Moths aren't going to hurt my gun cabinet. What's, what's he talking about? Fabric, right? My corduroy jacket. It's not really in anymore. It's in, it's in, it's in holes from the moths. That's an important thing. We don't think of textiles as a, as a thing, anymore, as, a, as a, a sign of wealth. If you had large, broad fabric, that's very expensive. It's very painstaking to make. If you think starting from you know, a, a sheep and ending up with a, 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 a garment, that's a lot of effort. That's a lot of craftsmanship, and, and there needs to be quality effort in every step or you don't get a quality product. And the moth just comes in and chews it up. Rust, you don't have to work hard to get rust. That horror, that horror of that poor cadet standing there with his, with his dummy M14. They gave us M14s at West Point to march with. They look good in uniform. And it's a great rifle too, but it's not a functioning M14. But it has all the metal pieces. And he, he hands that rifle to the inspector to look at. And he flips it up. And he opens the buttstock little plate thing and he says, there is rust on your buttstock. How do you have rust on this rifle that is not, we don't even, we don't understand. And then you walk discipline tours and you, you know, miss a, miss a meal or something or used to. Um, the, uh, the idea of rust, it's just going to happen. And it's everywhere and it's, some of you are so young that you haven't really seen rust happen. But it doesn't take very long before you're, you won't live very long before you'll see that it, uh, it really, the metal stuff is all perishable and it goes fast. And then there's people. This is environmental conditions, moth and rust. What about people? This is something that you don't really think of, that your stuff is easily taken, swindled, absconded with by people that are thieves. This is a fun word. See this word right here? K-L-E-P-T-A-I. Klepti. Klepti. Ever heard of a klept? Klept? kleptomania. I heard it um, in the local um, Chinese outlet for all our stuff, the Walmarts and stuff. Um, it's not a Chinese store, but they sell Chinese stuff, right? So at the, lo the local, we're all consumers of these things. In the local Walmart, I've heard that they're going to do away with the self-checkout lanes eventually, that they've said that that project has failed because it is now worth more to us to hire people to actually check the things out like before than it is to have to save money on labor because people are stealing so many things walking out. The kleptomania is, is rising, and people are like, why would we not? It's right here. I mean, they can afford it. 
look, all that stuff in there, they can, they can afford it. And people are walking away with no character, no integrity, and they're stealing things because no one's looking. Well, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you steal it if you just want it and you don't want to pay for it? Well, because there's always someone looking because you should be looking because you're supposed to be a steward of your own character because you do what you do for God's sake. That's why you would say no to stealing. But it's kleptes, the, klept, the kleptos, okay, um, they break in and they kleptao or something, klepto, klepto they klepto. The, the thief thieves or the stealer steals. That's not E-E-L-E-R, stealer. That's the S-T-E-A-L-E-R. Big difference there, Pittsburgh. Okay, so where the thieves break in and steal, humans can take your stuff. Well, not if not our. We've got enough weapons. What about people that have weapons? They can come take your stuff with badges because they have the power to do so. Well, not here or not in this constitutional republic. See, Nothing you own is safe, but your salvation and the, store, the treasury that you stored up in heaven. And the, the sooner you get with that, that thought, the freer you'll be to get with the storing up of treasures in heaven. But thesarizo, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in nor steal. That's pretty straightforward. If my earthly treasure is worthless because eventually it's going to be wasted or stolen, and my heavenly treasure, there's nothing that threatens it. It's called security. Now, why do we not act as though that's true? What stops me from living life as though this is going away and it's not of real value and this heavenly stuff is of eternal value? Why don't we live like that? What's the missing link? Think about it with me. Let's do a little faith project, a little, little thought project. Why don't I live as though the earthly treasure is nothing and the heavenly treasure is everything. Why do we do that? Yeah, we don't trust him. We don't believe it in the moment. We see dollar signs and that's real. Money, it's, it's, it's real. It's, you know, and the, eh, the spiritual stuff isn't real. Because, beloved, in America and the age in which you live, chances are you're dual formatted. You're double-minded. You think secular thoughts in a secular frame, and you think spiritual thoughts at church or when you're thinking churchliness. And, you're, and you, don't, you, don't have, you haven't yet broken down that separation where it's all his and all that I have is his and my life is his and I'm serving him at, in, in the context. I once knew a child who was cor- uh, corrected, was punished at school, at a public school here, for praying with her friend. She was corrected and... Uh, required to do some sort of uh, standing on the wall at recess or something, some actual correction, because one of the people in authority in the government school uh, caught her praying with her friend. Okay. So, first of all, what a magnificent thing. The child was, had enough of a relationship with God. She was praying. Were you a child as a believer where you knew to pray and you had a real spiritual like prayer life? I, I had that some as a kid. So the authority comes along and then not only says, uh-uh, but then puts them into some judicial punishment. The negative reinforcement, the, the psychologists call it, to change the behavior. They do a behavioral modification reinforcement cycle with the child. Well, there's two ways you can approach that. 
You can say, as a, and, we, and we all have a little coward in us, you can say, well, I don't want that to ever happen again, so I'll never, I'll never pray with, with my friends again at school. You can get a little rebellious streak, a little, little William, William Tyndale, a little, um, little Luther, and say, I don't have to obey that. I've got to obey God. I'm going to obey God, and I can pray all I want. And you can, you can fight in that sense of, I'm not going to you know, try to call a public prayer meeting, but I'm going to pray. And, uh, and I ha- here I take my stand, and I can do no other. Uh, Luther says the Diet of Worms. You, you just you take your stand, and it's very unusual for a child to do that. Or, or the child learns the lesson. Not necessarily a coward about it, but that's not something we do in this frame. And child's dual formatted. Unless, unless God does something to break that down. I, we all grew up with that. If you grew up in government schools in America and you're alive today, you got dual formatted in some sense. You, you, you've learned to get along in the secular frame and that's, the way, that's where that stuff's allowed and you've got the spiritual frame and it's just Hegel. I'm sorry, it's just um, Kant. It's Kant's dual thing, the, the upper story, lower story. And it's a lie. But it, it does make for comfortable family gatherings around the table. Meaning we don't talk about uh, religion or politics at the table because it causes disputes. So since we're going to go along in polite society, we won't talk about those things. And then that metastasizes into public discourse, and all of a sudden there's no Christ. There's no Christ anywhere. What I'm saying is the reason we don't believe these things Sometimes it's because we're dual formatted and we don't have a practice of faith. We're not trusting in God in that frame of mind where we're out and about. We're doing our secular time. But the Bible doesn't recognize that for you. It doesn't say you have part of your life. God has your life. And there's a different way you behave in a different circumstance. But always inside, we're worshiping God, we're serving God. I'm here on God's account. Am I saying that you should go into the public circles and preach the gospel where it's not welcome and people say you're disrupting our, our, uh, our business. We're saying to, to be rude to people and to beat them up with the gospel. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying you have to be shrewd as, uh, as serpents and wise as doves and you have to say, I'm Christ's agent in any circumstance I find myself. And I may be talking to him silently about these secularists in front of me or I might be talking about him out loud when they ask the question. And I might be praising God when I get together with his people about the opportunity I had to talk to these secularists about God in that circumstance. You're always his wherever you are. And if you will do this, if you'll adopt that, break down the barrier mentality and say it's all God's, then you won't struggle so much with your faith when it's time to make that calculation that this this offer of money isn't valuable, but the eternal wealth of this decision that I'm about to make this is valuable. For where your treasure is, that explanatory gar, for where your pleasure is, your treasure is, your heart will be also. Where is your treasure? Where are you looking? The way of saying your heart will be somewhere obviously isn't to be taken literalistically. First of all, it's not your physical pump. And if the treasure is in heaven, beloved, your heart, the inner person, the inner core of your being, that is not in heaven either. So why does it say your heart will be there? Because it's what we call, now watch this, a figure of speech. Your heart is in the right place. I hope so. We use this figure of speech all the time. Home is where the heart is, whatever that means. 
What we're saying, what Jesus is actually saying, I love the thing sometimes preachers get in a bad habit of saying what the Lord's trying to say here. And I, never try, I try to never say that. What, what Paul's trying to get at, what I'm clumsily attempting to understand from what Paul perfectly said is really what we mean. What Jesus is telling us is that your attention goes to where your treasure is. What do you value? The, the Christians, the religious people have tried in the last 30 years to get into public discourse about the things of faith by talking about what? Values. We're going to talk about traditional values as kind of a signal word for the Christians to be talking to the other Christians and then the people that aren't Christian not to be offended that we're talking about Jesus and the gospel and, you know, and righteousness. Our religious values, our traditional values, family and sexual purity and marital you know, bliss and all the, all the things that are God's way of life that he's described for us and it's really clear how he wants us to walk based on creation. Well, that word values has lost its meaning, but it really is a powerful word. What do you think is valuable? Jesus is teaching that. Where your treasure is, that's where your attention is going to be. That's where your heart is going to be. What's on your mind is what it's saying. What you value is on your mind. If your mind's on your money, your money's on your mind, then that's all you are is you're just, you're just playing with kindling. And that's how the world is. And this is, as Jesus will say, that's how the Gentiles think. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is literally, this is a tough word, if your eye is hoplus. That's a very important word, young people. I want you to be sure you remember this. Hoplus, if your eye is hoplus. It's an adjective describing the ophthalmos. Anybody know what the ophthalmos is? That would be the eye. We, have, we saw that in chapter 5. If your eye of you, the eye of you, is hoplus. Now, one thing we do when we've got a hard word to figure out what it means. Your Bible might say clear. Um, what does your Bible say? Jerry, you've got, a, you've got an authorized? Single. single. If your eye be single. Like, if my eye is single? Or if I, in one eye socket I only have one eye? I'm not one of these people with two eyes and one eye socket? I'm, a, I'm not a flounder? right, with two eyes on one side? Like, what does this mean if your eye is single, if your eye is clear? Well, this is a tough word that the translators have all often struggled with. And so what you'll do when you have a hard word is you see how it's used other places. Because we don't have Paul's dictionary of Greek, and we don't have Jesus' dictionary of Greek. The way we write our Greek dictionaries, we see how it's used, and then we say, these are the categories. So we go say, how is it used? It's called lexicography. Word studies. I will teach you. Now, hoplus, hoplus. When you go look this up in other places, it occurs in one other passage, and it's in Luke. And it's the same quote. It's the same thing Jesus is saying. So it's what you call, excuse me, it's what I call a two-pox legomena. It happens twice, not a, not a hot pox, a one time. It's a twice. But it's a weird one because it happens in the same type of discourse where Jesus is saying the same thing. He's talking about the eye and how he wants your eye to be. All right, so well, you can't really, therefore, get context for the, for the meaning of the word using other places, so you go to the broader usage in Koine Greek. And this is a really interesting word. Single, if you understand that it's talking about single-minded, and so one, one common translation for this, as the Greek writers will use this, is sincere. 
Not double-minded, but single of purpose. That's what the King James guys are getting at when they translate it. What they're trying to understand as they translate. We're just trying to receive what God has given us here. The word sincere seems to be to capture the sense of what this means. And it might also be just called good. It might just mean true. It might just mean properly functioning, and, but, but within the sense of sincerity. To mean what you say, say what you mean. If your eye is doing the right thing. Now, how does a window do the right thing? Well, first of all, if the window is designed to have light come in, you have to uncover it. And then you want to make sure that there's nothing physically on the window so that you've got to clean it. And then all the necessary functional maintenance to make a window work. Remove any obstruction, remove any grease or other debris or material and clean it. Oh, there's streaks. Well, got to go again until it's right. And that seems to be why they say clear or clean in some of the other translations. It's functioning like it should. And I know that you're like, that's not... This is a tough, what I'm trying to tell you is a tough word, however you slice it in, um, in the lexicography. And when you're reading your Bible and you have a word that kind of like, what is that? That's hard. That's probably what's happening is that they're struggling with the, a rare word in Greek. But I'll translate it sincere. If, and I'll do it because of the contrast. If the eye is sincere, your whole body will be illuminated. Will be photano. Photano. Where, where we get the word photon, light. This is photos, this is light. It will be enlightened, and it will be in the future. It's a future, it's a future um, Amy. The light of the body is the eye, and therefore if your eye is functional or sincere, if it's doing what it's supposed to do, your whole body will be illuminated. Now what this means is that if you want light, you turn on the light. But if, you're, if your eye is a passive light, receiving light from another source... You can understand now why this is so important. What are you looking at? Back to verse uh, 21, what you look at is, what is, is really where your treasure is. Uh, there your heart is also, and so now we're looking. What are you looking at? But if your eye is bad or evil, poneros, this has to be in contrast to the previous word hoplus. If the eye is bad, not functional, not doing its job, in a passive thing, it's looking at the wrong thing. If your eye is bad... Your whole body will be dark. And therefore, if the light, not like, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If that which is supposed to be light in you is actually darkness, then how great, there's no hope for light. We already had dark, and now the light is dark. That's, that's just, there's no hope. All right, so what's the point? What's the point Jesus is making? He's saying, cover, uh, be careful what you look at. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's talking about using your eye appropriately. But it's not talking about in a moral frame about looking at, at just naughty things. It's not, that's not the topic. The topic is what are you treasuring? Because there your heart is also, so you're looking at your treasure. The topic is your attention to what you value. And the challenge of this passage is to figure out what is valuable. Have you figured it out? Have you understood God and the things of God? The eternal things are the valuable things? That's the faith position. That's if we believe in Him, then that's our valuation. And it's, it's tough. It's hard for people to get hold of this. No one can serve to kurioi. Last hour I explained to you this word kurios is Lord. It could be translated master. It means the one in charge. No one can serve two masters. Who can serve two masters, by the way? I love when Jesus, who knows all the universals, gives us one. 
He knows all the universe. He knows all the everything is this way and nothing's that way. He knows every case that that is. I like to say universals when they're not true, you know. Um, like you never get up on time. Well, sometimes they get up on time, right? Um, but, but God actually has the universals, and this is a big one. No one, not you, not me, not anyone, can serve two masters. Oh, why well, can't? You can't. Jesus said it. Do you believe him? No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate one and love the other, the other he'll love, or he will be devoted to one and the other he'll despise. Pastor Dave read that a few times. Maybe you've read over it a few times. And you wonder what's the difference between hating and loving and being devoted and despising. And it sounds like there's not a huge difference between those two thoughts, right? So why does he do that? Why, Jesus, are you doubling? Why are you saying double things? Well, notice the order. I put it back in its, Hebrew, in its Greek order, and we have a Hebrew-minded rabbi teaching us. It's written in Greek, but he's speaking Aramaic when he says this. It's inspired for us in writing by the Holy Spirit and the pen of Matthew in Greek. But he will either hate, that's the bad one, and the other he'll love, or he'll be devoted, that's the good one, and the other he'll despise, that's the bad one. So you have hate on the outside with despise, and you have love and being devoted on the inside. That's called a chiasm. And it's the question is, of a chiasm is the focus, and it's the good thing. It's what do you love? What are you loving? You'll hate or love it. You'll hate or love one or the other master if you have two of them. But the point is the love that you have, the focus of this chiasm apparently is being uh, loving and being devoted. By the way, that's the way you're supposed to relate to your Lord. You're supposed to love him. You're not supposed to grudgingly say, well, since you're in charge, I'll have to say no to this and yes to this. And I don't want to serve. It's the attitude that really matters. Well, I didn't do the thing you said not to do. Yeah, you did. You disobeyed me because you're arrogant and I told you to humble yourself. You disobeyed me in your attitude, and it matters. And then the Lord points out the two, the two bosses, God or wealth. You cannot serve God or mammon. Mammon is often translated into English as mammon, but it's not a translation. We call that a transliteration, and mammon is apparently a noun that means wealth. You can't serve both. So he's gotten us notice from practicing your wickedness, or your, sorry, your righteousness before men to get their approval so that your father won't reward you because you have your reward in full. And now he's grabbed that thought of reward and said, you need to store up your rewards from your father in heaven. And then, and now he's saying, you gotta, you're either going to serve God and be rewarded by him or you're not. So hang on to that thought. This cleans out a lot of our baggage about anxiety, about oh, what's going to happen. It's all about him. It's all, it really is all about him. It's not about me. For this reason, I'm saying to you, do not worry. Merim na'o, to worry. Everyone needs this. Do not worry. Should we worry? We should not. Why shouldn't we worry? Anybody have a good reason why not to worry? Because you told me not to, Drill Sergeant, because he said don't worry. But I, but I, I feel like, like worry. He said don't do it. But, but my, but, but Right. So who knows you better, you or Jesus? Who knows what you can do or what you should do better, you or Jesus? That's the question of all, every word in Scripture. My experiences told me that I have to worry. Well, you don't know much, and I don't either, and God does, and we'll trust Him. For this reason, I'm saying to you, do not worry about your soul, your psuche, in this case, your physical life, what you may eat or what you may drink. See, the worry for the soul in this case is temporal needs. Don't worry about those things. 
He doesn't say don't, don't feed yourself. He says don't worry about it. It's not to, to drive your anxiety. Neither for your body, that's soma, what you'll put on, what you'll wear. Is not the soul much more than food and the body much more than clothing? I have a rhetorical question. I wonder if we know the answer. The soul is much more than food and drink, right? Right? You ever throw food away? You don't want to throw your soul away. Um, What about clothing? You ever have clothing that wears out? But your body, if you've got some wear out issues, you need to address it, right? You, You take care of this. It's the most valuable physical possession you have. One more verse and we'll quit for Christmas. He saith, in verse 26, he didn't say kingfisher, but I'll read you something about the kingfisher. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Everybody knows we're worth more than birds. That is a beautiful little, little guy right there. That is the kingfisher. We have them here. They have them in Europe. There's several different species of these guys uh, throughout the world. And the reason I wanted to close on the kingfisher today was because he's beautiful. And that's, that just seems Christmassy. He looks like he belongs on my Christmas tree. I really think he's gorgeous. And um, I love birds. I love that they're, they're one of the most, uh, in, in nature, is there anything more colorful in the animal kingdom or in the flora, really, than birds? You could say some of the flowers are, compete with the birds, but we have a beautiful world God's given us, and uh, Jesus refers to the birds. Now, Mr. Kingfisher, he seems like he's got some pretty snazzy gear on. He looks like he's about ready to, I don't know, if he had a little breastplate um, and a crown that said, holy to the Lord, he, could, he would be decked out like the priests in Israel. Like They were really, um, really snazzy the way God dressed them up. If you read the latter chapters of Exodus. And uh, he's just absolutely gorgeous and resplendent in his, what color is that? Are we, we going to say turquoise? The blue color. Blue is a really hard color to get, by the way. In the ancient world, um, they were good at red and, uh, and, and purple, which is red, but more so, you know, the way the dyes work. They crush up the worm and get red. They were good with, with red color. White you get from bleaching and fuller, the fuller work. But, but to get blue was almost un, unknown in the ancient world. It could be done, but... Uh, but it was really hard to do. And yet God's just got blue jays all over the place. Peacocks. These things are gorgeous. And they're just magnificent. And I mean, I couldn't even possibly get the kind of dye together uh, in the ancient world that would make, uh, would, would even compete with a blue jay. Well, the reason I bring him up is that he's a physics experiment. This guy is a lesson. Should I say a physics lesson? A lesson in light. Because the kingfisher and the blue jay and the peacock are not blue. That's not really the color of their, of their feathers. The, fe- the kingfisher's brown, but that's what he looks like. Now, by my definition of the kingfisher's brown, I mean the pigment of his feathers is brown. But their architecture, their structure, the way they work with the, the rays of the sun, with photons, the reflection of the sun on the physical architecture of the kingfisher gives you that color. It's a reflection of the sunlight based on the art. In other words, it's not a pigment. I got another picture here, I think. There we go. This tells it all, folks. And if you have any questions, I'm sure this is going to clear right up. All right. The red dot, the red circle is, these are the different kinds of coloration that you can get in, in the animal kingdom. 
You can have what's called pigmentary coloration, where you actually have a color like the, like the kingfisher's feathers are brown. And the sunlight, unless it had the certain, this kind of architecture, the sunlight would reflect back brown spectrum because brown frequencies to your eyes because um, of the pigment. That would just be what you would think of. In other words, what we're saying is, if, in the old comic books, if you see like Superman, I used to like Superman action comics when I was a kid, Superman's hair is black, right? But it's not only black. Sometimes it's black with blue. Because the way they draw him, his hair is so black that it's reflecting black blue where there's light. That's what's happening with the kingfisher. He's what's called um, structural coloration. And it isn't a pigment in his feathers. It's the architecture of the, the way the, the feathers, the little molecules on the feathers or the, the particles of feathers, the way they're structured, same with the blue jay and the peacock, that they're reflecting back this, this spectrum of this, this frequency of light, but it isn't actually a pigment in there. In there. So there's no chemical that does this. It's just the way the cells that God designed the feathers to come out the certain way, this is how they interact with sunlight. So you can say, well, for me, to my eyes, it's a blue bird, which is true. But notice that your father in heaven who clothes the birds of the field, sometimes he does it uh, in a very startling way, how bright blue they are, in a way that you would not even expect. That bird is not really even blue in terms of his pigment, but in terms of his structure, he is. Then, of course, you have the other kind, which is bioluminescence, which means that there's a light source within the cells themselves. They're kicking out light from the feathers architecture, but that's not happening here. I thought you'd appreciate that because this is a picture of God's work. This is how God clothes the birds of the field with structural pigmentation, structural coloration and uh, some of the prettiest birds to my mind, to my eyes. And, uh, and I, find, I find this just to be a signature of the creator. It's how he chose to do it. And why do you suppose he did it that way? Why does dust in the atmosphere reflect back blue when the sun hits it at that angle? Why do we get blue sky in the daytime? I used to say because God loves the infantry because their color is light blue, sky blue. But the reason he did it is because he loves you and the, and, and the infantry, but he loves you. And he, he knows that's pleasant. It, it pleases him, so he gave it to you. And this is the God we serve, and that's what he's doing with birds. These little birds, kingfisher, how long does he live? Actually, the story of the kingfishers, um, they fish... One of the words for them in, in the Europe is ice bird. They fish and they have to eat like, some of them have to eat like 16 to 17 minnows a day in the wintertime. And so the, uh, they have a huge attrition rate. A lot of them freeze to death during the winter. They have more uh, clutches per, in their species than most birds do because there's such a heavy attrition of them. You don't see them very often. I've seen one or two here and there. But it's just a phenomenal thing. And you know, nature is full of this. The more you unpeel, the more you see the signature of your creator. And it's not an accident. He did that, and he said, hey, look how I colored this bird blue. You like that, don't you? It's not even blue, but it looks blue to you. You're welcome. I just wanted to highlight the power and glory and beauty of our God's creation because that's what Jesus points to. And he said, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God who so clothes, let me, let me, oops, I don't want that. There we go. But if God who so clothes the, the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, will they not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Don't worry then, saying, what will we eat? 
Well, we drink what we wear for clothing, for the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things. Your Father in heaven knows you need these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. How do you and I relate to the coming kingdom? How do we belong to the kingdom? We're recruiting those who will rule with Christ alongside us in it. We're recruiting the church, the bride of Christ, which is to rule alongside the king. That's our relationship to the coming kingdom. Jesus lives ever to make intercession for us, and he must rule until he subdued all of his enemies under his feet. And there's a coming return of Christ to earth we sing about every Christmas. Do y'all know when we sing about Jesus' return? We sing for the event of Christ's advent, his first coming. We sing of the second advent. Do you know what the song is? I call it the C scale. Because if you play the scale backwards, you get joy to the world. The Lord has come. Do, ti, la, so, fa, mi, re, do. That's the scale. That song is not what we're experiencing now. Far as the curse is found, do we see it removed? No more let sin and sorrows reign, nor, nor thorns infest the ground. How's that going for us? I have a friend that won't, won't allow people to play joy to the world for Christmas in their church. I say play it, but just remember, it's because we're looking for the second advent, having already had the first. Joy to the world, the Lord will come. We will embrace our king. And how, how do you relate to this coming kingdom? You're preaching Christ. You're telling others by your words and your deeds of your Savior. You have the Holy Spirit to empower you to be his witnesses. And you're seeking the things of God, his righteousness. You're seeking to be about this construction project of recruitment. Understand recruitment of what's coming. And in that, in that endeavor, in that evangelistic and disciple-making endeavor, it's one person at a time. It's not civilizations. It's not communities. It's not we're going we're to baptize the town. It's one person at a time. And you do this, you be about this work, you, you marshal your life's endeavors to be about that work, right? I didn't say you go to seminary. You could, we could talk about seminary classes. I'm not talking about preaching in the pulpit. I'm talking about living a life that is disciple-making. How are you part of that? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, the conclusion. We'll all fall asleep counting our blessings. So, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we dedicate the closing moments this Christmas Eve to anyone who may be in the hearing of our voice that doesn't have eternal life. Father, and also to our own hearts that we need to remember the things of life, the way we got here as we started this morning, as we trusted in Jesus as our Savior. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your house. The Apostle John said he wrote the signs, including the resurrection, the seven signs in John. These have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing him I have life in his name. And John says again and again and again, whether he's quoting Jesus or commenting, he says that it is to believe in Jesus to receive the life. Father, I pray that the gospel of simple faith in the magnificent literally excruciating work of Jesus to pay for our sins on the cross would ring true in our hearts and be ready on our lips that we could tell the people we encounter what the Lord Jesus has done for them in this time and in every time give us the wisdom and strength to say these words of life let your spirit work in us so that we can bear witness for him for some of us father it feels like an impossible task we could never do let us see by your power by your grace what wonders you can wreak, you can you can bring forth through us we pray in Jesus name
We all said, amen.